letters into cartons every Christmas. There are many biographies available, some comprehensive, such as E.J. Simmons's or Ronald Hingley's, some flamboyant, such as Henri Troyas, some finely judged, such as Mikhail Gromov's or V.S. Pritchett's. Russian or not, they all use the same range of printed sources. Nearly 5,000 letters written by Anton Chekhov have been published, but several have been severely bodlerized. The import of another 1,500 letters, now lost, can be inferred from the replies. These sources, notably the complete works and letters in 31 volumes published in Moscow between 1973 and 1983, have a remarkably full and intelligent scholarly apparatus, all of which provides biographers with an enormous range and quantity of material. The untapped sources are just as vast. In the archives, principally the manuscript department of the Russian State Library, once the Rumiantsev Museum, then the Lenin Library, there are some 7,000 letters addressed to Anton Chekhov. Perhaps half of the letters in the archive have never been referred to in print, primarily letters that reflect Chekhov's private life. Moreover, in various archives, notably the Russian, formerly Central State Archives for Literature and Art, the Theatrical Museum Archives in Petersburg and Moscow, the Chekhov Museums in Taganrog, Melikovo and Sumy, there is a mass of documentary and pictorial material, letters of contemporaries which shed light on Chekhov's life as a writer and a man. Archival records show that a small circle of Russian scholars have, over the last thirty years, combed these sources thoroughly, yet their published work, detailed in the bibliography of this book, uses only a fraction of these sources. A Russian and Soviet tradition of not discrediting or vulgarizing, the phrase comes from a 1968 Central Committee resolution forbidding publication of certain passages, has even today made Russian scholars hesitant about bringing the full range and depth of the Chekhov archives into the public domain. Three years' work, systematically searching, transcribing and mulling over the documentation, has convinced me that nothing in these archives either discredits or vulgarizes Chekhov. Quite the opposite. The complexity, selflessness and depth of the man become even clearer when we fully account for his human strengths and failings. Chekhov's life was short, but neither sweet nor simple. He had an extraordinary number of acquaintances and liaisons, though few true friends and lovers. He moved in many orbits. He had dealings with teachers, doctors, tycoons, merchants, peasants, bohemians, hacks, intellectuals, artists, academics, landowners, officials, actresses and actors, priests, monks, with officers, convicts, whores, foreigners and landowners. He got on well with people of every class and condition, except the nobility and court. He lived for virtually all his life with his parents and sister, and much of the time with one or more of his brothers as well, not to mention a network of aunts and cousins. He was restless. 
He had countless addresses and travelled widely from Hong Kong to Biarritz, from Sakhalin to Odessa. To write a full biography would take a lifetime longer than Chekhov's own. I have concentrated on his relationships with family and friends, but there is a sense in which his life is also a historia morbi. Tuberculosis shapes it and ends it. His efforts to ignore and to cope with disease form the weft of any biography. There are many works in English offering a critical study of his work. If we read about Chekhov, it is primarily because he is a writer of very great importance. Any good bookshop or library offers a number of critical studies to enrich the reader's understanding of Chekhov's work. In this biography, however, his stories and plays are discussed inasmuch as they emerge from his life and as they affect it, but less as material for critical analysis. Biography is not criticism. Not all the mysteries in Chekhov's life can be solved, and much evidence is missing. Chekhov's letters to his fiancée Dunia Efros, to Elena Pleschiva, to Emily Bijon, almost certainly exist in private hands in the West. It is equally possible that the hundreds of letters that Suvorin wrote to Chekhov are mouldering in an archive in Belgrade. Their discovery would force Chekhov's life and, because of what Suvorin knew and confided to Anton, Russian history, to be rewritten. A few archival items have also proved difficult to trace, for example, most of Chekhov's student exercises in medicine. Nevertheless, the material that is now available enables a much fuller portrait of Chekhov and his times than ever before. D.R. Queen Mary and Westfield College, London, February 1997 Part 1 Father to the Man We could hear screams coming from the dining room and knew that poor Ernest was being beaten. I have sent him up to bed, said Theobald, as he returned to the drawing room. And now, Christina, I think we will have the servants in to prayers. Samuel Butler, The Way of All Flesh 1. Forefathers, 1762-1860 Who would have thought that such genius could come from an earth closet? Anton Chekhov and his eldest brother Alexander were bewildered. In two generations the Chekhovs had risen from peasantry to metropolitan intelligentsia. Little in Anton Chekhov's forebears hints at his gifts for language or foretells the artistic talents of his brother Nikolai or the polymath versatility of his eldest brother Alexander. The key to Chekhov's character, his gentleness and his toughness, his eloquence and his laconicism, his stoical resolution, is hidden in the genes he inherited as well as in his upbringing. Chekhov's great-grandfather, Mikhail Chekhov, 1762-1849, was a serf all his life. He ruled five sons sternly. Even as adults they called him Panochi, Lord Father. 
The first Chekhov of whom we know more is Mikhail's second son and Anton Chekhov's paternal grandfather, Igor Mikhailovich Chekhov. As a child, Chekhov met him on a few summer holidays. There was no affection between them. Grandfather Igor fought his way out of bondage. He was born in 1798, a serf of Count Chertkov of Olkovatka in Voronezh province, the heart of Russia, where forests meet steppes, halfway between Moscow and the Black Sea. Chekhovs are traceable in this region to the 16th century. Igor, alone of his kin, could read and write. Igor made sugar from beet and fattened cattle on the pulp. Driving Count Chertkov's cattle to market, he shared the profits. Through luck, ruthlessness, and thirty years' hard work, Igor accumulated 875 rubles. In 1841, he offered his money to Chertkov to buy himself, his wife, and his three sons out of serfdom into the next class of Russian citizens, the petty bourgeoisie, Meschan. Chertkov was generous. He freed Igor's daughter Alexandra, too. Igor's parents and brothers remained serfs. Igor took his family 300 miles south to the new steppe lands, tamed after centuries of occupation by nomadic Turkic tribes. Land was being sold to veterans of the Napoleonic Wars and to German immigrants. Here, Igor became a state manager to Count Platov at Krepkaya, Strong Point, 40 miles north of Tagamrog, on the Sea of Azov. He pushed his three sons onto the next rung in Russia's social ladder, the merchant class, by apprenticing them. The eldest, Mikhail, born 1821, went to Kaluga.